Hi everyone, and welcome back to Think Like a Human. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Will Cilio, and today we'll be talking about truth, lies, and politics from a deontological perspective. Here with me to talk about this, we have Lawrence Wilkinson, chairman of Hemming & Condal, a global investing and advisory firm, where he uses the practice of scenario planning to advise companies on how to prepare for the future in a way that focuses on the key factors for change and the diverse range of possibilities that they produce. Lawrence also has a blog, Roughly Daily, where he keeps his own commentary on world news and events. I had a really great time talking with Lawrence. It's honestly very rare to find someone with his depth of perspective on America, the world, human nature, and everything that goes with it. We actually ended up with so much content that I saw fit to split things into two episodes. Um, so this first one will focus on politics and the idea of the noble lie, and the second one will delve more into themes of the internet, information, and dealing with uncertainty through Lawrence's specialty of scenario planning. The philosopher that I want to be looking at in these episodes is Sienna Schifrin, specifically her essay Lies and the Murderer Next Door, from her book Speech Matters on Lying, Morality, and the Law. In her essay, she is responding to a sort of classic attack on Kant's deontological ethics that claims that if a murderer came to the door trying to kill someone who is hiding in one's house, because of the categorical imperative against lying, uh, which is a part of Kant's deontological ethics, um, Kant would suggest that one should not lie to the murderer in such a circumstance. Remember from previous episodes that Kant's deontology suggests that one takes up the point of view of the universe to generate laws about how one should act, and these laws are completely absolute, like no lying, no stealing, ever. And while it may be a great idea, in theory, um, in practice, there are certain times when those sorts of categorically wrong actions um, will actually be the correct action to take. So Schifrin takes up the charge of making Kant's claim consistent with the way things actually are in the world. Um, and so to do so, she distinguishes lying from deception by saying that lying is when one, quote, misrepresents the contents of one's own mind. So for instance, when I don't believe a statement and present that statement in such a way, um, and importantly in such a context that a listener would have every reason to think that I believe what I just said. Um, and so Schifrin says that there's a distinct wrong to lying under this definition in that it undermines discourse as a means to accur accurately relate the contents of one's own mind to someone else. Um, quote, As Kant emphasizes in his lectures on ethics, we lack direct access to the contents of one another's minds. So we must rely on communication for mutual understanding and cooperation, which are compulsory ends for human rational agents living together. As human beings, we have foundational interests in knowing the contents of one another's minds. So we epistemically depend on one another for information so that we can navigate the world, especially from a moral standpoint. We need to know one another's will, end quote. 
However, Schifrin claims that in what she calls suspended context, lying is not lying, but merely uttering falsehoods. Because in these suspended contexts, such as the context of the murderer at the door, the agent to whom you are lying doesn't actually have a right to the truth due to their being in this sort of moral wrong. And so with this idea, she believes she has fixed Kant's thorny little problem of the murderer at the door. And for me, while I love the paper, I think that the trouble is in the details, as it's basically impossible to come up with a law for determining when one is rightfully in a suspended context, which is what a deontological defense would have to do to bring the theory home. That being said, I really liked the ideas behind the paper and found them to be pretty enlightening, um, and resonated especially well with the idea that lying undermines discourse, feeling that it very strongly applies to today. Um, and so that last bit is what our conversation focused on mostly, along with a bit of ancient philosophy from Plato. Um, Plato, in his great political work, The Republic, describes mankind as divided into classes within a city. And the noble lie is this lie that everyone has their place in the Republic and their place within the class that they are in, and that everything is as it should be. Um, which kind of ties into religion and the idea that, uh, you know, there's this sort of higher order that lets us be content with where we are in life and gives everyone a reason to care for the well-being of one another. Um, the question for me, though, is at what point does this noble lie become not so noble anymore? Um, and so I see these themes as highly pertinent in the political climate of today and really enjoyed talking about this with Lawrence. I hope you guys enjoy, and here we go. Lawrence, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Um, so yeah, let's start with this idea. Let's go, let's start from the beginning. Let's start with Plato and the idea of the noble lie. Um, if we're to apply that idea to, to politics today, right, we, it's, it's very easy to see um, the stereotypes of lying politicians and everything as, um, yeah, as, as a stereotype, but now... We have to give some blame to politicians in general for perhaps fomenting this atmosphere that um, suggests that the noble lie is in some sense permissive um, or permissible. However, it, I, I see it as very bad in that you're almost treating other people as means, even if it's for their own benefit. Um, so just can you lie to someone for, your, for their own benefit? What's your opinion on that? I think it's certainly widely believe that the answer to that is yes at a couple of levels. Uh, I mean, you can lie to someone's own benefit when you tell a white lie that spares their feelings. Um, uh, but I think more to the point of your question, uh, there, there's an extent to which, you know, arguably, Plato was right that leaders do, whether it's in the context of his three-class structure or any other kind of, of institutional setting, leaders do, in the, in the process of leading, share what are ideally lies in the sense that they're not at least yet true. Um, they right. are, if you will, aspirational generalizations about 
who one about what a country or a people or an organization wants to be. Um, that's in the good case. Now, what we're what we're witnessing today is competing versions of that going on, which which brings us to the observation that, I mean, you know, you these uh, these stories, these lies, uh, can be aspirational generalizations, or they can be outright falsehoods. Right. You know, they can be references to you know history that never happened, as we're seeing in the far right now, which you've sort of appropriated misleading and non-existent uh, aspects of the Middle Ages to try to drum up support for a return to a regime that never actually existed, like the kind of you know, Ronald Reagan's constant appeals to nostalgia for a time that never was in America that never really existed. Um, in other words, it seems to me that there's sort of two interactive sort of considerations one needs to bring to considering these these large political narratives that are in question here. One is what's the intent? It's slippery to begin to try in any absolute way to judge the validity of one intent versus another, right? But I think one can observe that to the extent that the intent the intent is to build on something authentic in the group being led in a positive direction. What I'm, what I'm trying to get at is that if, if, if Franklin Roosevelt invokes a vision of American society that galvanizes action toward a recovery from the Great Depression, that's arguably a good thing. Uh, right. uh, if the Proud Boys invoke a story about nativism and racism and hate that is exclusionary, you know, that's arguably a bad thing. Uh, each of them draw on, each of them work in, to the extent they do, because they touch authentic feelings in the people who are subscribing to those narratives. So we can't discriminate on the basis of whether that's the case or not. Rather, we have to make, you know, as it were, moral judgments about the intent. Uh, so, so intent is one, mm -hmm. I think, gauge we need to watch when we're thinking about this. The other gauge we need to watch goes to content and and to you know the presence or absence of outright lies <laughs> right. uh, and 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 you know back to the point of your your query here uh, if in an, in an aspirational generalization one is describing the ways in which things that are might become things that are better one's not making claims um, that are subject to sort of truth, falsehood kinds of things. And as long as that's on the basis of things that actually are, you know, we're not claiming that the world isn't as it is, but that's, you, you agree with the intent or you don't, but that's cool. That's genuine civil discourse. 
The problem comes when, again, back to the Proud Boys and the alt-right, when the narrative is constructed of what you might call mistruths, you know, downright lies about things that happen, but also distruths, uh, just sort of made up stuff about things that, that didn't happen in the past as far as anyone knows, weren't a feature of the, the, the past they're trying to resurrect. Uh, so, so, so distruths, if you will, or elisions that obscure a more complicated truth. You know, it, it, this was Reagan's great, you know, he, he was great at evoking the leave it to beaver America uh, as something we should all hope to reattain without observing that if you walked four blocks from the Cleaver's house, you were in an America that was a very different place than the the Cleavers uh, right. inhabited, and that would be part of the package too. Uh, right. So it, it strikes me that when we're thinking about these big grand narratives um, that are the things around which civic action coalesces, or, you know, they're the things that give people their, their public, their civic identities, we need to watch both those gauges. It's interesting that you that you focus on intent and that you believe that um, in certain cases, I guess, we can tell such aspirational um, stories that we hope are going to come true, but but perhaps aren't. Um, because I, I wonder, to go back to our philosopher, Sienna Schifrin, I wonder if she would, um, if she would agree that those are acceptable um, modes of discourse. Well, I, I suspect she would, only because in the way I imagine it happening, it's done with some transparency. I mean, it's right. not... Um, the, the proposition isn't that... Uh, you know, it's not prosperity gospel. It's not, <clears throat> you know, tithe me 10 bucks and I'll make you rich. Um, it is, you know, we're a better people than this. If we work together, this will happen. It is al- it's almost like uh, sort of speculative fiction, if you will, right. in that people recognize that that's what it is, but recognize in it things that could be. The danger comes when the the speculative fiction, if you will, back to the all right, uh, contains a whole bunch of of wrong, pre- you know, pre- you know, presumptions, lies, mistruths, distruths, just in- incorrect premises. Um, that's when it gets really nasty. Um, right, right, and that's, and you would you would agree that that's perhaps when. That's perhaps when discourse starts to get undermined. Yeah. Well, it for sure does. I mean, discourse in the moment, discourse is a real train wreck. I mean, it, <laughs> at, and, and it's a real train wreck because it's challenged at at least a couple of levels. I mean, for, the st- for a start, there are these really different and increasingly divergent visions of what this nation should be. Mm-hmm. Um, so these very different narratives, uh, and in fact, many variations on all of them. I've 
picked on two pretty extreme versions, but you know they they array these narratives across a pretty broad spectrum, um, and so we have, if you will, dueling visions of who we might be underway that complicate discourse. But then underneath that, we have a a culture in which three different kinds of of I, 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 I want to be careful here of problems with veracity it seems to me are are prevalent mm-hmm. one is the you know just a culture in which there's no longer any there's no longer the sanction there used to be for for lying uh, for whatever reasons that I confess I don't really understand uh, when politicians were business people or are, are caught lying, uh, you know, they, there's just not much consequence to it. So lying becomes more common. There is, as Harry Frankfurt very helpfully puts it, uh, a growing culture of just bullshit, which he very helpfully distinguishes from lying mm-hmm. uh, by, again, going to intent but you know this isn't me telling you a distruth because I have a very particular kind of thing I want to accomplish. Bullshit is me doing what I hope I'm not doing in this podcast, but me just trying to perform an informed person when I'm not. Yeah. With no, I mean, my only regard is for how I come across, not for whether I'm actually saying anything that's true or not. Yeah. Uh, this is a phenomenon we have daily opportunities to observe as we watch, you know, videotape of Trump. Uh, and indeed other members of his entourage, though, it's funny when your leader is performing bullshit, most of the most of his lieutenants have to figure out how to lie in order to support the bullshit. It's an interesting relationship. But there's a third thing that I don't, I'm going to have a hard time articulating, so bear with me, but it's a, it's a phenomenon that's pretty widespread, I believe, these days that is at least supportive of the environment in which both lies and bullshit can prosper. Um, and that is this weird culture of performing irony uh, that is so prevalent, in particular online, but elsewhere as well. Um, a culture in which people will embrace loony ideas, conspiracy theories, whatever, and give them rich exposure and consideration, ultimately, ironically dismissing them, but in a fashion that, you know, at the very least doesn't undo the exposure these weird stories have been given, but often, if the irony isn't performed very effectively, actually ends up endorsing them. Right, 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 right. 
So you see this on YouTube, you see this on Instagram, you see this all over social media. Um, and it's, it, while it is neither directly a line or bullshit, except insofar as the content it's focused on is concerned, it creates an environment in which, if you will, uh, the kind of deconstructionist, you know, nothing means anything right. kind of ethos seems to accrue. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a very good point. And I um, just to go back to your to your first point um, when you were talking about the different competing narratives, that brought me back to to Schifrin's ideas and how she's talking about how there's these this very distinct way in which um, in which lying undermines discourse. Well, I think I mean I think if you go you know if you want to figure out so the interesting thing about Schifrin and it is she's a really interesting thinker near as i can tell while she she's written on a broad range of subjects she's essentially a philosopher of the law yes um so she's not just concerned with civil discourses i tend to use that word right Right. uh she's concerned with in many ways what is the purest form of civil discourse and and in many ways the the kind of most important Form. If the law breaks down, uh, you know, <laughs> we're all lost. Uh, which, which, you know, leads me to observe, for what it's worth, that when we're thinking about lies in the context of civil discourse, it's important to think, you know, about the lie itself, but also about the context in which it happens. Yes. And the consequences of its happening, and, and and so, just as a kind of opening observation about her work, when you're talking, when you're writing about the law, the context is about as serious as it gets. When you're talking about the larger kind of civil discourse over what public policy should be, who should get elected, that sort of stuff, it's still pretty serious. Uh, when you're talking about, you know, whether or not you like Stranger Things third season, it's less serious. Um, and when you're, you know, responding to a friend who asks if this is flattering or not on him or her, right. that's less serious still, right? Uh, I, both in, con- in, in context and, well, in context. And then you ask about consequence, you know, if you lie in in a legal proceeding, it can have, you know, it, it can pervert a, syst- a systemically critical process. And so that's clearly a problem. Um, if you lie in the world of electoral politics, public policy debate, that sort of thing, uh, again, it can misdirect all kinds of, of efforts mm-hmm. uh, that really matter. Um, Ironically, if you lie in a very personal context, you can create huge harm. You can also prevent yes. pain. And so, again, I believe consequence kind of plays into mm-hmm. it. There's no, if, if something has reached the level of a legal proceeding, there's no room to think about sparing people's feelings. Or, no. I mean, but... But not everything reaches that level, nor should it. 
Right, right. But I guess the context that we're talking about is the context of the office of the president. And for me, it's at least hard to see how that is any less serious than the context of a legal proceeding. Because he's, you know, it's the, it's the leader of our country. Um, one would expect him not to lie. Yeah. You know, the and funny thing about that, though, is that what what's fascinating to me about this moment, I mean, presidents have always lied. Right. Right. I mean, they've always lied. But, but two things have been true. One is there have been consequences of getting caught. Right. You know, yeah. when Nixon got caught lying, it was a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, when Clinton got caught lying, less big, still. It was almost more turmoil, of a personal. But, well, lying. but it still, yeah. it was, you know, a lie. But now, you know, there's almost no. But, but the other big difference is that in the current administration, the problem is almost secondarily lies. I mean, not that that isn't a huge problem, don't get me wrong, uh, and and one on which there should already have been definitive action. But in many ways, the more terrifying thing about it is the bullshit problem, um, the kind of literally making it up as one goes quality of the discourse, which would be perverse and and kind of scary if it stopped at simply hearing this stuff and then we watched it get corrected in practice. But as we know, uh, this stuff gets invented if the accounts of life within the Trump administration or anything to be believed. There's been a a team of folks around Trump who've systematically kind of either refused or gracefully avoided doing a lot of the sort of nutty stuff. He's just bullshitted. Um, they're, they bear, they're being systematically replaced by people who will do what he invents and then create lies to explain it. Right. So that's for me the, the complete disregard for anything approaching a kind of objective truth. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, it's a difference that makes a difference. It's right. a meaningful difference that um, if, you know, if I'm John Kennedy and I'm asked point blank if we're going to do anything about Cuba and I know we're about to invade the Bay of Pigs and I don't say anything, I say, no, we're not. That's a lie in the classic sense. I'm misleading. I, the contents of my mind are, I know we're going to do it. Right. And I'm not going to tell you. You can believe that the the ends justify the means or they didn't. That's using that example. You probably agree they didn't. But you, I mean, in other words, there's that kind mm-hmm. of line versus what Trump does. Half the time he doesn't understand the question. And if he does, he has nothing in his mind. So he just makes stuff up. Um, that's for me, a difference that makes a difference. Right. Yeah. Um, and that is even more, that is even more horrifying. Honestly, it doesn't have anything to do with the truth. And it's, um, it's, but it does have real consequences. But it does have real consequences, yeah. yeah. And no, I, I agree. It's much scarier. Uh, and and it's funny. It's over the course of his, his first term, it's gotten increasingly scary 
as the people who would say, God, that's bullshit. You know, inside his administration, we're not going to do that. Just forget it. You know, just move on. You know? Right. As they've been replaced by people who will do whatever he says and actually do it. Um, so, yeah, no, this is, uh, it's almost as though we'd elected, you know, Tristan Zara or some Dada artist, you know, who just you know, cuts up newspapers and draws words from a hat to right. lead us. I mean, it, sadly, it, that's not actually so because there are organizing themes to what Trump does that largely go to experimenting with ways to get a rise out of his base. And it, it, it's, it, yeah, it's deeply depressing. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, it's, it, it is politics and on a certain level, we allow these sorts of lies or um, sort of larger-than-life aspirations that aren't going to actually play out in the grander scheme of things. But um, but we know that these politicians are doing it in a certain sense for their base, for their voting base. It's not like a... Um, they believe that they have these people behind them that they are serving in a certain sense and that they are, or at least we hope, and that they are um, these goals, the goal-oriented talk that they are producing, it's the goals that they are oriented towards are the goals of their base. Whereas in this case, it seems like the goal is simply simply remaining in power and, and keeping, and, and it's, 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 it's not only remaining in power within the the system that we have, but also undermining that system. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think my own observation for what it's worth is that that Trump's doing a little of both of those things. Uh, on the one hand, he is clearly, you know, as, as a guy who, again, we'll never know for absolute certain, but it, it appears that the whole run was just a publicity stunt you know, he sort of almost accidentally yeah. got elected. Um, but once he's in, you know, I think he kind of likes being notionally the most powerful man in the world. So he means to stay there. Uh, not to mention that uh, he virtually certainly really enjoys in the in every sense of that word, um, the shield from prosecution that being president gives him, given that the run he made exposed all kinds of things to scrutiny that wouldn't probably otherwise, they all merited scrutiny, but they wouldn't have gotten it. So he is probably in for a whole bunch of prosecution the second he steps down. Mm -hmm. So he'd rather not. Um, that said, he has identified, I think, as a, as a way of staying in power a group of people to whom you know whom he needs to keep happy right um, and he's essentially improvising ways to do that um, I say improvising ways because he's interestingly not you know an evangelical Christian but he deeply depends on their support um, nor interestingly is he more than a kind of casual nationalist nor racist. I mean, I think he is both those things, but in that kind of 
you know, I want to protect the rents in my building kind of way more than, you know, the deeply held beliefs of the really far uh, gone folks to whom he's actively appealing. Mm-hmm. Real racist, real nationalists. So I think, sadly, it's it's a kind of both and thing. It's like looking, I mean, in another dimension, one looks at Trump, at his behavior internationally is is literally almost anarchic he is just it is as though he is setting about to destroy the entire post-world global regime um, as quickly as he can um, and you know having some effect um, definitely a the, good amount of success yeah. yeah at the same time that he's behaving like an authoritarian domestically. Uh, I mean, it's a weird, uh, it's a very weird kind of combo that doesn't, near as I can tell, lead anywhere particularly healthy. Um, And it's hard to spot anywhere else. I mean, because, uh, you know, the other sort of really ruthless nationalists around, and there are plenty, Putin, Modi, people like that, are executing very systematically on foreign policy, Xi Jinping, uh, that are good for their countries. Right. Radically less clear that Trump's doing that. He's just laying waste. If it worked for any president before him, it's no good. Right. So let's tear it down. Right. Not good. Definitely not what you want uh, in a president. And yeah, it um, it's definitely a scary thing. So I thought it was really interesting to hear Lawrence's perspective on this all and where it is different or similar to my own perspective. Um, It's always just so fascinating to hear the perspectives of people with many more years of experience than me um, on topics such as the topic we discussed today because I have my own opinions formed with my meager few years of experience in the world. and they have their opinions formed with many, many, many more years of experience uh, in the world. And so it's interesting to gauge like my reaction to current events um, off of theirs to sort of, I guess, get a better understanding of the magnitude of a certain situation um, in relation to other aspects of history. Uh, so kind of like, you know, the how much of a big deal is the Trump era? It's hard for me to say with my few years of experience, but to listen to Lawrence's perspective and hear how he reacts to it uh, gives me a better idea. And yeah, the the general impression that I got in this case was that the situation that we are in is pretty quite unprecedented. Um, And it really will be interesting to see how the history textbooks handle this one in 10 years or so. Anyways, as I said earlier, the next episode will be a part two of this discussion, basically picking up uh, right where we left off, but we also sort of changed focus in the conversation to the internet and information and dealing with uncertainty uh, with some help from scenario planning. Um, So it's already out there, or should be at this point. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Um, I hope that today's show was not only fun, but perhaps set off some trains of thought to new and interesting destinations. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the episode, 
have ideas for future episodes or just general feedback about the show, feel free to shoot me an email at wcilio20 at cmc.edu. Thanks again for listening. I'm Will Cilio, and this is Think Like a Human.